Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is America. Change forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Before we start, you may have noticed the change from being completely focused on the novel coronavirus. That will still be a major part of the mission of this weekly show, but 2020 is turning into a year unlike any other. Events can change us. 9-11 changed the days of just hopping on a plane. Shootings have metal detectors at some schools and pretty much every government office and courthouse. The Internet does us the favor of making pretty much everything available in our homes and the disfavor of making pretty much everything available in our homes. Me Too is changing the way America does business. The George Floyd case is changing the way we police our nation, even what police TV shows networks are willing to air. This year, we have a virus that is changing the way we shop, see movies, eat, travel, even what stores we may never go to again, and of course, how we vote. And this year, we'll have elections that will also leave America changed forever by laws that will outlast whoever our leaders turn out to be, judges that will decide how we live, and military leaders who will or will not lead us into battles. What we will be doing in these broadcasts is not just looking at the news of the week, but looking at how these events are changing who we are and how we live, whether it's the stories I've mentioned or scientific discoveries or technology that will make saying, I'll text you, as outdated as saying, I'll dial that number. To find out what's ahead, now let's see where we are. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam has decided to take down the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. And this is part of a larger movement that's been going on for years. In the San Francisco area, they're trying to take down a statue of Sir Francis Drake. It was on a boulevard named for him in Marin County, where Black Lives Matter protesters marched this past week, which was ironic because Sir Francis Drake was a slave trader. And this sort of thing has a history in America. In 1776, five days after the Declaration of Independence was ratified, a gilded statue of Britain's King George III was torn down on Bowling Green in Manhattan, and that statue was melted into bullets to be used for muskets for revolutionary soldiers to fire against the British. So there's a history of this, but obviously in this election year, there's a political angle as well. And for that, we turn to Larry Sabato, political analyst and the founder and director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Larry, how are you? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're in Virginia, and of course you're going to hear all of the arguments, especially in terms of Robert E. Lee, but this is coming up time after time over the years. What are people saying for and against these statue memorial removals now? Yes, this is an old argument, actually, on both sides. Uh, been having it pretty much all of my life. Um, the argument uh, for removal is pretty clear. Robert E. Lee uh, was not what he was cracked up to be by his supporters. That is, 
the truth is he's a traitor uh, who took up arms against the United States. Usually we don't put up statues of traitors, but of course in the South, certainly Virginia, which has more Confederate monuments than any other state, and certainly any other southern state, uh, Virginia believes uh, in parts of Richmond and rural areas that the Civil War just ended two weeks ago. Uh, there are actually people I've known in Virginia who, with Virginia's 400-year history, only care about four years, the four years of the Civil War. So uh, the the argument basically is that time has passed Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and all of the other Confederate heroes who are honored in one way or another, including uh, having U.S. military bases named after them in Virginia and North Carolina and other states. Time has passed that by. We've changed. Uh, the, the country has changed. The culture has changed. Uh, and in this moment, when everyone's focused on what happened to George Floyd and other African Americans, men and women, who've been uh, killed um, in uh, police operations, uh, this is this is the moment. This is the moment many have been waiting for, and certainly in Virginia. And that's why Governor Northam acted as he did. So is this a cultural movement, a political one, a cultural one with political overtones, or what? I think it's mainly a cultural movement, but of course, in this era of deep polarization, everything has political overtones, and certainly this does, uh, because uh, minority turnout, to be blunt about it, is so important to Democratic chances for anything, certainly in this presidential election. Uh, if um, African-American turnout had been similar to the two elections uh, that Obama won, Hillary Clinton would be running for re-election right now. So, yes, there are political overtones and undertones, but this is mainly about the culture and how we look at our history and what parts of our history we honor. We've gone through such change in the country politically since the mid-60s when Lyndon Johnson decided to support the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then succeeding acts, which turned the solid South, which used to be Democratic, into one red state after another. But there are areas that are turning purplish. So in a few specific races in places like Kentucky, Georgia, and Texas, there might be a political price to pay for politicians who advocate either one way or another on this issue because people either show up big for your opponent or they just don't show up at all. Uh, certainly. Uh, if this continues as a controversy, and it very well might, it's already lasted longer than most issues do these days, uh, it could have uh, political consequences for either or both parties. Uh, don't forget Virginia in your political calculations there. Virginia is the northernmost southern state, and it's really not a southern state anymore. It's a blue state. It's voted Democratic consistently pretty much uh, since 2010 all the way to the present, and, and almost certainly will vote Democratic and for Biden in November. Some of the things have become part of the legend of states that people want to believe, however they might believe about issues on the Civil War. And I'll give you an example away from the Civil War in Texas. There was a huge uproar in the state legislature some years ago over school textbooks that said Davy Crockett was actually captured at the Alamo and did not die there fighting as he did in the Disney movie. The thing is, he was in fact captured at the Alamo. Didn't go well for him. They kept him alive for about a week torturing him for information before they executed him. But because that part of the Davy Crockett legend has been so strong in Texas from a 1950s movie, the legislature was extremely upset that somebody might write the correct history, even though it still showed Crockett to be brave. These things are so baked into the histories of our states, it's tough to let go of them. 
that that is so true and you can apply that to many other circumstances the social myths about some of our central historical characters is actually much more powerful than the real history and that's one of the struggles here is to get people to focus on what actually happened and what people really did uh, they were not living saints they were human beings and they had their virtues and they had their vices like everyone else does but at a certain point after so many decades uh, even now a century and a half or more it's very very difficult to get people to focus on the big picture what some places have done and in fact some places have done with sir francis drake who i mentioned in the introduction is to leave the statue but put up a plaque giving historical context yeah he was a great explorer but yeah he was a slave trader deal with it is that something a politician can propose or is that going to seem too wishy-washy probably too wishy-washy it may be closer to the truth though uh, i'm at the university of virginia founded by thomas jefferson we honor Jefferson, as we should, for the Declaration of Independence and the Louisiana Purchase and the founding of the University of Virginia and many other things. But he was also a slaveholder, uh, and he knew better. He clearly knew better, uh, but uh, he was not inclined to do anything that would have denied him his public career. So you have to look at people as a whole. That's true for those living today. It's true for those who were there at the founding of the American Republic or during the Civil War period. You do need these uh, balanced assessments, but it's really difficult to get people to be balanced about emotional issues. Finally, 2016, the result of the presidential election, surprising enough to many people in America. Coming into this year, you add issues like statues, which are going to be fought about state by state, but still could affect the national election. You've got COVID-19, where we've seen problems this past week with the elections in Georgia. So many things. I think it's a long time since we've gone into an election with so many different issues that could affect the presidential election and control of Congress in so many different ways. That's absolutely true. We compare 2020 already to 1968, which was a terrible year for America in many ways, between the assassinations and the Vietnam War and the economy started getting rusty. Lots of things happened in 68. But even in 1968, you didn't have the kind of explosive combination of a pandemic, a collapsing economy, uh, and racial protests just in the first half of the year. God only knows what's going to happen over the next five months. Larry Sabato is a very busy political analyst this year and founder and director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Larry, thank you for being with us. It was fun, Gil. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There are a lot of proposals floating around Capitol Hill and state houses around the country on ways to reform police procedures in ways that people feel would be both fair to the public and to the police. One, of course, has been requiring body cams, which both can give evidence of police brutality, but also can give evidence that such a claim might be unjustified. But... Have those cameras changed anything? Ethan Zuckerman is Associate Professor of Public Policy, Communication, and Information at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and the former director of the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab, and he has been looking at the evidence, and it may surprise you. Ethan, good to have you with us. How are you? 
it's great to be with you as well. I'm sorry that we're talking about such a sad subject, but it's an important one. Well, it certainly has everybody's attention this time around. And let's talk about the history here. Once upon a time, not really all that long ago, a claim of brutality was the word of an individual against the police. Society generally sided with the police. Now we've had years of both police body and car cams, store videos, and of course eyewitness phone videos that are on the internet minutes after or even live as these events happen. Have they changed anything? I wish I could say that they had radically changed situations, but the evidence suggests that they really haven't. And I'd suggest going back uh, all the way in time to the Rodney King video. Uh, That was a beating of Rodney King by the police. Uh, It was captured on video cassette. This is well before the days of mobile phones. Of course, the documentation of that uh, terrible beating led to protests, uh, led to an uprising, uh, but it didn't necessarily lead to justice for Rodney King. And unfortunately, that pattern seems to be repeated even today. There are now some very good studies that have been done looking at thousands of police officers and looking to see whether wearing a body camera correlates to less aggressive and less violent policing. And the bad news is it doesn't. Uh, It's statistically indistinguishable between police officers who are wearing body cameras and officers who are not wearing body cameras. Does that even account for when the body cameras are turned on or might be turned off because there is a premium on server space at many police departments? They don't have these things turned on all the time. And some people think, well, they're turned on and off depending on you know who they might help. No, that's right. There are lots of questions about who should have the right to turn a camera on and off. Obviously, on the one hand, you want to give a police officer moments of privacy. Uh, Police officers are human, and we we want them to have off-camera moments. Um, Unfortunately, there's also many examples of cases where police officers have turned off body cams uh, before going into confrontations, and in many cases, we often don't have the information. Um, What worries me is that in cases where body cameras were worn and turned on, they don't seem to have the prophylactic effect that we might hope for. What we might hope is that a police officer who knows that she or he is being recorded, who knows that his or her actions might be reviewed after the fact, might handle uh, himself differently. Uh, And so far, the evidence is is that that's not the case. You might consider uh, the case of Philando Castile, uh, the police officer who pulled over Philando Castile four years ago outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, was being filmed by his dashboard camera. Uh, and that did not prevent him uh, from shooting Castile seven times in the chest. The fact that uh, his girlfriend was filming and in fact live streamed the video to Facebook Live also did not have a preventative effect. So as far as body cameras, dashboard cameras preventing violence, there's pretty good evidence at this point that it doesn't seem to work that way. In the video shot by 17-year-old Darnella Fraser, you see Officer Chauvin, who's now charged with murder, look at her. So he knows she's filming and that the video is likely either being recorded or even live streamed to Facebook. There was a time, and still in cases, where officers, if they think something untoward was going on, might have taken the phone or just, you know, blocked the video or something. In in this incident, they didn't even bother. That's absolutely right. And I think when we go back um, and and think about recent instances of uh, police violence against unarmed civilians, uh, I think about Eric Garner. 
uh, Eric Garner's death in Staten Island was filmed. It was filmed by a friend of his named Ramsey Orta. Um, ultimately, a Staten Island grand jury declined to bring charges against the police officers who killed Eric Garner on the street. In fact, the person who suffered the most for filming Eric Garner was Ramsey Orta, who was investigated by the police and subsequently arrested for drug and weapon possession. And you can make the argument that that was a retaliatory investigation and arrest. Um, what was so chilling to me, of, of the many things that were so chilling in George Floyd's murder, was seeing Officer Chauvin look directly at the camera. And he knew he was being filmed, and he knew that odds were his actions would have no negative consequences. It is extremely unusual uh, that we pay attention to a killing in this fashion. Uh, most killings of unarmed black people by police do not get this level of media attention. There was a big study three years ago by the Washington, D.C. mayor's office, and they assigned more than a thousand police officers to wear body cameras in the district and more than a thousand to go camera free. And they hope to find evidence that wearing cameras correlated with better policing, uh, less use of force, fewer civilian complaints. And they pretty much found absolutely no difference at all. That's right. They actually found one really interesting difference, which is that uh, officers who were wearing body cameras were slightly more likely uh, to be assaulted. Uh, it's very hard to explain that. That may simply be... Um, a, an accident of statistics. But when they looked for the things that we hope that body cameras will do, that we hope that body cameras will get officers to uh, think again, to try to de-escalate, uh, to be aware that someone is watching, thus far in that study, uh, which is a very, very high quality study, it has a very large sample size, uh, and it's done with a control group, uh, so that we're not just looking at body cameras, we're looking against police officers who are not wearing body cameras. Uh, there was a statistically insignificant difference between the two. And it's an alarming study because, of course, in the wake of Eric Garner, in the wake of Michael Brown, we have moved towards body cameras as a way of trying to deal with police violence. And it makes perfect sense. If we could find a technical solution to the problem, that would be much easier than these much more difficult and complicated steps that are now being talked about of defunding and restructuring police departments. But unfortunately, as far as that prophylactic effect of body cameras or even of civilian cell phones, we simply do not see it in the research. This has larger consequences, too, because there was hope that police violence or violence against police, which uh, also was not cut back by body cameras as shown by the Washington, D.C. study, would be an information problem. It's it, that data would enable us to get a handle on all sides of this issue. The more data you have, the more evidence you have, the better we're all going to be. Uh, so far, no good. Police violence is not a data problem. Police violence is a power problem. The reason that body cameras and the reason that citizen video cameras don't end police violence is that it is so hard for police violence to have consequences for the individual officers. The cases in which these videos matter, the cases in which these videos have power, is when they help mobilize people. When people take to the streets in the way that they have uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, these videos can be very, very powerful forces for rallying people and for getting them to rise up.
But as far as actually leading to direct accountability, we have a deeply broken system around police accountability. And simply adding more data into a broken system won't change matters. We need the system to change. So except for the fact that the videos do seem to, and for some reason the Floyd video more than others recently, might arouse the public in terms of changing police procedures, uh, reform measures, all of that, uh, so so far cameras, which everybody had so much hope for, and, and again, including police who thought it would document, you see, this was necessary and help them, it's so far been, I don't want to say a total bust, but uh, certainly not what anybody anticipated. Filming police brutality helps the media pay attention to what has been a chronic situation in America for many, many years. Unfortunately, police violence against unarmed people, and particularly unarmed Black people, is more or less a constant. Uh, it is simply a consequence of how we do policing in the United States. It does not vary very much from one year to another, one month to another. What does vary is when we pay attention to it. And extraordinary situations like the murder of George Floyd get us to pay attention to it. The media amplifies it. Sometimes people take to the streets and demand action on it. One of the things that we need to be able to do is find ways to pay attention to situations like this crisis of police brutality, even at moments when it's not normally in the news. We need to find ways of paying attention to crises that don't just flare up now and then, they're actually constant. What flares up is our attention. And videos like the video of George Floyd can help us pay attention. We need to do a better job of paying attention between those flare-ups. Ethan Zuckerman is Associate Professor of Public Policy, Communication, and Information at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and former Director of the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab. Ethan, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thanks very much. I'm really glad we had the chance to talk about this. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the biggest stories this week is the divide between police and minorities, set off by the video of what Minneapolis authorities are calling the murder of George Floyd. That case has set off a national debate on police tactics, oversight, and reform. George Gascon has seen the story from all sides as a beat cop, an assistant police chief in Los Angeles, and police chief in Mesa, Arizona, and San Francisco, where he later became district attorney. He's now running for DA in Los Angeles. George, good to talk to you. How are you? Yo, I'm doing well. How about yourself, my friend? I am doing fine. Let me go through all these levels with you because not that many people have all of these levels of experience. And let's start as a beat cop back in the 70s and 80s in Los Angeles. One of the things we're now debating in this country is what they do, their interaction with people, their interaction with minorities. Tell me what experiences you have that really stick in your mind watching what's going on in America right now? Yeah, look, as you indicated, Gil, I have been through every angle of the system and, you know, I've disciplined officers. I've had opportunities to use force and didn't or did. Uh, I've prosecuted police officers. Uh, and, you know, I, I look at what we see on the streets today and I go back to my own time in 1992 during the riots. And, and you know, we never thought that we would be here again. And now we're seeing police using excessive force. Uh, against peaceful demonstrators, and it's just so heartbreaking to see this. 
You have been unique among DAs in wanting to change the standard from reasonable force to necessary force. What is the distinction there and why is it important? Yeah, the distinction is extremely important. And the distinction, just if you put it in layperson's terms, uh, right now, police officers under the current standard, basically, they, they can use force because they can, not because they have to. They, so the reasonable standard is basically very broad. It's been interpreted very broadly by putting a necessary standard, which, by the way, California has moved to that recently. We will see what that looks like for deadly force. That means that the officer can only use deadly force in, in California now if they absolutely have to, uh, as opposed to a reasonable standard that has a lot of wiggle room. You're running for district attorney. You've been a district attorney. One of the criticisms of the system in many cities around the country has been that DAs do not want to prosecute police because they depend on them as eyewitnesses, need their cooperation. Is that true? I think it's, it's very true. I think also there is also a, a relationship that goes beyond that, right? You have in, like in L.A. County, for instance, you have a union that put $2.1 million to support the incumbent. So you have both money and you have a relationship that is created, and that's why I think eventually, really, what needs to happen is that we have to create separate offices that will review and, if necessary, prosecute police officers that is not within the DA's office. Union, civil service protection, the idea has been to defend officers. Some people think that they've gone so overboard in the defense of bad police, they've tarnished the reputation of the good. Do you think that's true? Unquestionably. I would say that actually what the unions have done, unfortunately, in policing is they have made the work of the good police officers more difficult. Uh, we have been able to show, and there are studies that show that actually agencies that have very strict use of, use of force policies, uh, not only do they have less incidents with the community and less people get hurt, but even officers actually are safer, they, they're less likely to get hurt, and they have more of a positive uh, interaction with the community. When you have officers in police department where you have a lot of use of force, the level of stress is very high, and actually the dangerousness to police officers increase substantially. Let me ask you, wrapping up, a, a kind of a broader question. I'm wondering about the relationship between police and citizens, and not just the videos, and not just racism, but the daily interaction and the use of fines to support the court system that may have broken the contract between Americans and what they view police officers as doing. Uh, people getting pulled over for things like not dimming lights for an oncoming car, which may sound like an odd thing for me to bring up, except it eventually resulted in a person being fatally shot in Austin, Texas. Decades ago, people would see a policeman around and go, oh, great, there's a policeman. I'm safe. Now they look in the rearview mirror and go, there's a cop now what i think that the george floyd incident uh it was so shocking to everyone that i think that by and large most of white americans look at race as a, something that is kind of foreign to them right and we kind of live in, in sort of our own privilege if you will to some extent fixing the problems of racism in this country cannot be the responsibility of the african-american community they have to be the responsibility of all of us but namely the white community has to engage in this and for the first time in my life, listen, I'm seeing in my own neighborhood, I'm seeing, you know, white middle-class America out there demonstrating. And then guess what? They're now being the subject of excessive police force. I have doctor friends that are treating peaceful demonstrators. They get hit with rubber bullets. And, and these are the people that have never been on the wrong end of police use of force. And now they're in shock, right? I mean, there is a constitution that we fought. We fought a war for this. Uh, called the War of Independence, right? And, and then we created this constitution, which is a social compact, and I'm going to go 
and exercise that right. And this thing I know, I'm being Perez at the other end of this forest. And by the way, I, I don't necessarily blame the police officer in the line. You know, why I don't condone their behavior. I blame the system and I blame the, the lack of leadership because that only happens when you have a vacuum in leadership. George Gascon has been a beat cop, a police chief, a district attorney, running now for district attorney in Los Angeles. George, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Yo, thank you so much. And you take care, my friend. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The George Floyd killing has resulted in a lot of changes, some of which no one saw coming, some of which have been brewing quite a while. Gone with the Wind will now carry an introduction explaining the times in which it takes place and the times in which it was written and filmed when shown on HBO Max. President Trump has rejected a call for military bases to be renamed that are named for Confederate generals. And there is a move to rename Arlington House the Robert E. Lee Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. One of the people making that argument is the man who raised the funding for its restoration. David Rubenstein is co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group. He is the philanthropist who paid most of the bill to restore the Washington Monument after it was damaged by an earthquake and millions more to help Mount Vernon save and curate George Washington's books and papers. It's good to have you with us. How are you? My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Let's do some history first. The restoration of the home where Robert E. Lee lived before the Civil War came in part because of your interest in George Washington. And can you tell people what that connection is? Yes. Well, George Washington obviously is the father of our country. He presided over the Constitutional Convention. He won the Revolutionary War and was our first president. And this home was originally built by his step-grandson, George Washington had no biological children, but he had he adopted two children that his wife Martha had had in a previous marriage, and then uh, a step grandchild of his uh, was the person who built this George Washington Park Custis, and that house was built in the early 1800s. Now, just to to be clear about this, because I think there's a lot of confusion among people, Lee lived there before the war, but basically he never owned it. It really came through the family through the father-in-law. Yes. Um, when the George Washington Park Custis, uh, one of his daughters married Robert E. Lee. And then after George Washington Park Custis passed away, his daughter moved into that house with her husband, Robert E. Lee. And they lived there for 30 plus years. And then when the Civil War broke out, uh, it was recognized since that, that Robert E. Lee was not going to be working for the Union, though he had been offered a job as being the general of the entire Union troops, he didn't take that job. He realized that you can't be the head of the Confederate Army if you're living, uh, you know, a mile away from Washington, D.C. So he moved out very quickly thereafter. The Union took it over and ultimately used it for a quartermaster corps headquarters. But they started burying Union, uh, Union soldiers there, recognizing that Robert E. Lee would never come back and live in a home that had been... Uh, that had as its front yard uh, thousands of deceased Union soldiers. So ultimately, they were correct. Lee never came back to the house. And ultimately, the U.S. government took it over. Uh, Lee's uh, son sued to get it back. He won in the Supreme Court, but then the U.S. government paid about $100,000 to get it back. 
Yeah, and it was an interesting coming together for American history because that deal was finalized by Lee's eldest son, Custis, and Abraham Lincoln's eldest son, Robert, who was by that time Secretary of War. That's correct. Uh, the situation was that uh, the, the family really didn't want to go back there and, and, and live over a, uh, a place where there was a cemetery, and ultimately the cemetery was expanded. And my interest in this was really this. I do like to preserve history and make sure people know more about our history because people don't know as much as they should. In that particular case, my view has always been that Arlington Cemetery is the most hallowed ground uh, in our country. It's our largest military cemetery. And it's the place where I think many people go during the day to pay homage to people that passed away or to go to the funerals that are going on. When they have a chance to go to the top of the hill they are going to the top of the hill and seeing the what is known as the Arlington House or Custis Lee Mansion, as it used to be called. And it's my view that that should be a uh, pristine place, one that reminds people of lots of different parts of American history, good and bad. So I did put up the money to help re- rehabilitate it and making sure the slave quarters were built out so people could see that there was slaves who were, or were helping make that place run. But I want now to have it called Arlington uh, House or just Arlington uh, Memorial or Arlington Cemetery House or something like that, that doesn't glorify Robert E. Lee. Now, I should make this a very important point. A lot of statues in the South, in the Confederacy, were erected, I would say, in the late part of the uh, 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, and they were not so much to honor Robert E. Lee uh, as they were to kind of make a statement about the importance of the Confederacy and what it stood for. When the U.S. government really um, began to call this the Robert E. Mansion, and that name was taken uh, officially in 1972. It was designed to reward him for his effort to make peace after the Civil War uh, more uh, beneficial to everybody, not just the kind of things that had been done before. So what uh, the U.S. Congress decided in 1972 was that let's have it be a place that reminds people what Robert E. Lee did after the war and not in effect during the war when he was fighting to preserve slavery. So that's a noble view, I guess. But I think in this environment, in this atmosphere, it, the best thing to do is to not think that people will know that history and just not have the Robert E. Lee name on it. It's interesting that Robert e. Lee the Fourth has come out in favor of taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, Virginia. So there's a general kind of changing of views or at least how these things are seen today and how people will react to them. Yeah, I think he has a number of descendants who are still in the Washington area. Some are. And um, I think they have a complicated view of this situation because they recognize uh, how some people have misused uh, Robert Lee's name and his uh, heritage and his views to perpetuate thoughts that are really not probably the ones that Robert Lee would have liked. Yeah, it is a cop. Our history is complicated. The slave quarters built at Arlington House were built not by Lee, but by George Washington Custis, the president's step-grandson who was raised by George Washington, who had slaves of his own. And much of our early history has this, what is now considered good and bad, of American leaders. Look, the White House was built with slave labor. The Washington Monument was built in part with slave labor. Uh, So many things in Washington were built with slave labor. So it's impossible to eradicate everything. And it's my view that it's one thing to say you have a a historic house or historic monument that truly is historic. It's another thing to have a pseudo-historic monument that was erected really not 
for purposes other than perpetuating the idea that the Confederacy or slavery was a good thing, which in some cases, honestly, that was what was really uh, behind having Robert E. Lee honored in the South and some of the memorials. One of the things behind the projects that you've been behind the restoration of, whether it's this mansion or Monticello, is that unlike a statue, they really can tell the whole story, including slavery. These sites can really tell us a larger story than, say, a a statue. We cannot eliminate the fact that slavery was part of our country. It's our birth defect. Many of the first presidents of the United States, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, were slave owners. So we can't eliminate that fact. We can recognize it. And I think when I've been involved in, let's say, Monticello or Montpelier, James Madison's home, in helping to restore them, I've insisted that the slave quarters be built out, not so much to glorify slavery, but to remind people that uh, these were slave owners and they had their pluses and they had their minuses. And we should, as as people looking at the history, we should know the good and the bad. David Rubenstein is co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group and a philanthropist who, is at, as you have heard, is behind the restoration of America's most revered monuments, controversy and all. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the most important ways we can try to stop COVID-19 is to have antibody testing to know whether people have had the SARS-CoV-2 virus, whether they have symptoms or not. But now the CDC says many of the tests being used are wrong half the time. Same odds as flipping a coin. In a collaboration between CBS News and the journalism company Clear Health Cost, consumer investigative correspondent Anna Werner has been looking into those tests. Antibody tests will not tell you if you have an active infection. They tell you if you may have had a past infection. As part of an overall program, a major testing company is now offering those antibody tests to anyone who wants one, including employers. But is that a good idea? We feel really lucky that we've recovered and, you know, it's behind us. Lisa Wagner and her husband, Maddie Goldberg, fell ill from coronavirus in March. In April, they had antibody tests before visiting her elderly parents. They came back positive. We feel a little bit like we have a superpower, but only within, you know, not 100%. So you're more confident now? Definitely. For now, I feel like I have some immunity. Many people want antibody tests, and major testing companies, including Quest Laboratories, are now offering them. Quest launched a program this week for employers that it calls Return to Work. One company signing up, Holiday Retirement. CEO Lily Donahue wants to test her 8,000 employees. Frankly, if you know that most of your employees are um, tested positive for the immunity, you may prioritize how that person works, right? She hopes the program will help her figure out how best to deploy them. So if you have a positive case in your community where there's a resident that has COVID, it may make sense for that immunity or, you know, the person who tested positive to be doing more of the interaction. And Quest's chief medical officer, Dr. Jay Wolgamuth, told us the tests are useful. Once we identify a person who has a positive antibody test and we've determined that they are not currently infected with the virus, we now know that that person is very unlikely 
to bring the virus with them into the workplace. I don't agree with that statement. He's Michael Osterholm, who heads the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Many of the individuals who end up being test positive are going to be false positive, meaning that they don't really have the antibody. Even if you do have it, we don't know what it means yet. And so I think it's very premature to market these tests like this. I think selling antibody tests to the general public right now is just plain wrong. But Quest's Dr. Wolgamuth disagrees. Yeah, I mean, we've been uh, responding to this uh, pandemic in a way which is, I think, quite selfless and is, is motivated by making a difference for the pandemic. I'm just wondering if people might get the wrong impression when you say it's going to give you insight on whether you can return. Yeah, I think um, it, it absolutely uh, can, does provide insight to an individual whether they're likely to bring a virus into the workplace or not. I think we need to be clear that this testing is not um, used to determine uh, who goes back and who does not go back to work. So, you know, to your point, if, if there is any language there that, that appears to indicate that, then that's something that we would uh, remedy. We spoke with our medical contributor, uh, Dr. David Agus, who told us that he does not recommend to his patients that they get immunity, uh, or I should say antibody tests, because he can't tell them if they have any immunity. CBS News consumer investigative correspondent Anna Werner. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.